We are going to just dig right in and dive right in today. Um, we've obviously been preaching and talking for the last number of weeks uh, on a series that is kind of dealing with a lot of things around heaven and hell and a lot out of the book of Revelation and the return of Christ and end times. And of course, this subject matter always seems to get people uh, interested. I think there's so much of this that's fascinating. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of this that is kind of a mystery, right? We can only draw what we can from much of what the Bible has to say. And, and, and there's an element of this that's yet to come that I don't think we can fully wrap our minds around. Uh, but that's okay. I want to just remind everybody, say, that's okay. It's okay. Look, there's a few things that are, to me, big takeaways from this whole series, really. I think I've probably mentioned these points almost in every one of these messages along the way. But several big takeaways that we need to draw from. Number one is that it's said many times that it is not for man to know the what? Time or hour, right? Specificity on timing is not something that we've been given. In fact, it's intentionally something that we've been told we will not have. So the exact timing, the day or the hour of when these events start to unfold hasn't been revealed to us. However, we have been given signs and seasons. On a broader level, there are signs and things that are indicators of when the time is drawing near. All of that, I believe, more than anything, is, is really geared towards the second big takeaway that we are to have, which is to live prepared, to live ready, right? I mean, if it was today or if it was soon, would we be able to say that we've been living our life loving the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, endeavoring to do everything that he's called us to do with this time that we had on earth. Not to suggest any one of us will ever do that perfectly, but to say that our hearts need to burn with passion toward that end, that laying down our lives to lay hold of the life God has for us and be a part of the work he's called us to to build his kingdom is something every believer should really have burning in them, fire and passion and much of what we see in the Bible around the prophecies of what's yet to come are meant to compel us to encourage us and to spur us forward to live more on mission and more purposeful uh, as a result of having knowledge and having awareness of things that are yet to come and the last one the big takeaway is that we see many times when uh, these events are discussed, it says, encourage one another with these things, right? It doesn't say, scare the living crap out of people with this stuff, right? Like we've seen happen over the years in some approaches and teachings toward the book of Revelation or end times. It doesn't say that these things should make you fearful, that these things should make you discontent and worrisome. It says encourage one another with these things. Because for the believer, for the child of God, the outcome is very favorable. The place that we have, that we are secure in now as a result of Christ's work 
is one that is a glorious outcome, a glorious future, a glorious hope that yet awaits us. It's something that is good to meditate on and it's much needed medicine for the soul to reflect on that this life is very finite and temporal and that which is yet to come is the, the best parts actually still yet await us. The best parts are still ahead. And sometimes when, you know, people um, I'll talk to, there is a sense of concern, a sense of worry about, you know, death. And that, oh, you know, I just, like the, I, I, my family and, and the things that I have that God's blessed me with. And, you know, I just enjoy life, which is great. There is a, a beauty and a blessing that we should have, that we should appreciate. But what I want to say that I believe is encouraging to us is that no matter how clear or unclear we seem to be able to peer into what yet awaits after this life for us, the reality that we get from the Bible is that no matter how good, no matter how blessed, no matter how favorable the conditions in this life amount to because of what God is doing in and through our lives, it still, no matter what at any point in time, is nothing compared to the beauty and the glory that's ahead for every one of us after we leave this life. It's hard to really grasp that, to fathom that, but in the Word of God we see that so much that's yet to come is going to far surpass anything that we've ever experienced or been through as good as it possibly could have been here in this life. And so that's, that's a positive thing, that we live each day with that blessed assurance, that hope, and that encouragement that, man, you know, my latter days are always going to be greater than my former days. The best is always yet to come. Praise God. Because that, that puts it all in perspective. It means no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, you can say that today, this day. My best days are still yet ahead. And that is encouraging for each and every one of us. So we've, uh, we've traveled a lot of distance over these numbers of weeks. We, I believe, are actually in the fifth week right now. Um, we spoke a lot about, you know, the beginning uh, of creation. And then we moved from there into the first coming of Christ. And then we are now in this age or this era known as the church age where we are assigned with the mission and task that Christ actually brought to inaugurate, to, he brought to mandate the church with. What is that? Well, Christ came, it says, to seek and to save the lost. It says that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we are at no point ever intended to be executioners of God's judgment. As much as we talk about and we need to define reality according to what the Bible says about heaven and hell and that hell is a real place and it is an outcome for those who reject the message of Christ, it's not our place. Just like Jesus said when he came, he came to seek and save. He didn't come to condemn 
but that the world through him might be saved. His initial mission was to bring the saving message, not to start condemning people. And he's assigned us with that same mission and mandate. Yes, these are realities that we must be aware of, heaven and hell and the outcomes of sin, but in the way we package that, in the way that we reflect that, in the way that we live, there should be an overarching, residing message of hope and of encouragement and of a glorious future in the way that it's brought forth to the world. Amen? Amen. And so we have this period of the church age that we're in that will last, continue, until an event comes and happens, which is the second coming of Christ. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks, and a number of elements that are surrounding that particular event. Primarily, we, we went through the seven-year period that actually precedes the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, it's also called. That seven-year period is a time of great tribulation on the earth, time when the Antichrist comes to power. It's a time that ends in a battle known as Armageddon when all the ungodly nations of the earth are destroyed. For those who are alive on the earth at some point in that period of seven years, there is a moment of a catching away where we're caught up in the air to be with Christ in the heavens. And those who have died and already gone on to be with the Lord, whose spirits are with him, are also united. There's a gathering together and that sets the stage for that final day of the Lord when Armageddon comes and all of the unbelievers who are still on the earth are destroyed and then the judgment is now getting ready to come. So there's a couple of things that we haven't made it to yet that's, that also happen right around this period of the return of Christ. There's a lot in this story, isn't there? I mean, you could just really go on and on with the details of this and I'm trying to cover it in a way where I pay, I invest enough time and intention to the details to give you good understanding, but obviously, I mean, many of these things we could preach on for weeks and weeks and weeks and just dig way into the details, and, and we're choosing not to do that so that we can kind of get through broad strokes of everything. So when Christ returns, one of the things that the Bible speaks about that's really fascinating, actually, and of course, if it's in the Bible and it teaches about it, then we need to know that. We've discussed that, right? Good, any of the things that we see in the word of God are important for us to know and for us to take in. And it describes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul does this teaching on how we get new bodies. We get new spiritual bodies that are created for heaven and for eternity. Now, in the Bible, we see a lot of examples where people were raised from the dead. Jesus himself had several of these miracles that he performed. We know the most famous is Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead in the tomb several days, and then Jesus came along, and he called Lazarus forth, and Lazarus was raised from the dead, and he came out of the, came out of the grave. There was a, a guy named Jairus whose daughter was ill. 
He came to get Jesus, and Jesus went with him to go see his daughter. His daughter had died before they got there, and then when Jesus arrived, he performed a miracle, and the little girl came back to life. And then one that I think is probably my favorite, which is the coolest one of all, in my opinion, is Jesus is walking along, and there's a funeral going on, and this woman's son has just died, and she's also a widow. So she's obviously grieving severely. And they're carrying the casket along for this guy's funeral. I guess they had the pallbearers or whatever. You know how they do that. And uh, Jesus comes along and walks up to the casket, touches the casket, and says, arise. Now, just picture this for a second. The casket door, I guess, flings open, and the guy sits up and gets out and starts walking around for, with everybody after that. And it says everybody believed. Well, I guess so, yeah. So... <laughs> There are these really cool stories of people actually coming back to life after they've died. But here's why I say that. The, the, the resurrection that we're getting ready to look at and study, as Paul teaches about it, is a different kind of resurrection. It's when we get new spiritual bodies that are for eternity. It's not the same thing as when people were raised from the dead on this earth after they had died a physical death. In fact, it was the same body, if you think about this, that they had when, when Christ raised those people from the dead, however many hours or days after they had passed. It was that same body that was raised back to life. That same body ultimately ended up dying at some point out there later in their years and turning to dust in the earth, just like all of our bodies will, right? So the resurrection that we're getting ready to look into about getting new bodies is different. It's a spiritual body that our eternal spirits are joined to to actually prepare us for the environment of eternity in heaven. And we're gonna read about how you know, the way God created all things, he created the body of them that, that they were in to be, be suited for the environment and the conditions to which they were a part of. All right, so let's dig in. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm gonna begin in verse 35. And, and prior to this, Paul is talking about resurrection of the dead, okay? So, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? So, what he's, what he's been trying to describe, and it seems like when you read this, that they're a little confused, and rightly so. It, it, later in these passages, it says, Paul even says, these, this is a mystery. So, you know, they're trying to understand. And he's saying that the dead are raised up. What he's saying is, is that the, the original bodies that died and perished in the earth, now there are new bodies that are being raised up at this event yet to come called the resurrection of the dead in the future. Okay, and they're trying to understand that. In verse 36, he says, foolish one. Don't you love how Paul just kind of, be like, oh man, sorry, I was just asking an honest question. All right, anyway, foolish one. You guys wouldn't like that if I was, if that's how I responded, would you? <laughs> um, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Now, watch the comparison, the example that he, he gives here now about this. 
And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So he's, he's going into this explanation of a seed now. And he's saying that when you sow the seed into the soil, you're not actually sowing the body that houses the life that's in it. You're not sowing the body that's yet to come. You're actually sowing the body that it's in right now, the seed, the outer layer, but the life is inside of the seed, okay? So he says, uh, verse 37, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So there's this comparison, this analogy of a seed going into the earth in its shell, the outer shell of the seed. The life is inside of that. And then what has to happen? That outer shell actually has to die in order for the new body, the new shell, the new containment, if you will, for the life of the plant, for that to be able to come forth. So it goes into the soil as a seed. The seed dies and it, and it decomposes and then the life grows forth something new that's holding that life. That's the plant that springs out. And so he's using that comparison that our earthly bodies, these tents right here, these physical bodies, go into the earth when we die the, the physical death, which is like a seed going into the ground. And then that body perishes and decomposes, but the life of it, our spirit, is eternal, and it's raised in a future state in a new body, which he's describing here as we're going to go on to see as a heavenly body, one that's set up for eternity. All right, so in verse 39, he says... All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, which means heavenly, and terrestrial bodies, which means earthly. But the glory of a celestial is one, and the glory of a terrestrial is another. There is one glory of a, the sun, glory of the moon, glory of the stars, for one differs from another star in glory. So, this is basically what I get he's saying here. He's getting ready to describe like the temporal, finite nature, is comparing it to the seed that dies in the earth, of these earthly bodies. And then he's talking about the glorious state of the new spiritual body that we're yet to have. But he's reminding them that there is still a glory on all of these bodies because God has created them. So even though these bodies are passing and fading and will turn to dust, there is a miraculous nature to these bodies that we have now, these earthly bodies, these temporal ones, that really reflects the glory and the goodness of God in his creation, right? I know we have a lot of people, fitness people and people that work out and are into nutrition here. It is a miracle when you study this stuff how the human body works in every level and in every layer. I mean, the way we can breathe, the way we can see, the way our heart pumps blood, the way that our minds work. I mean, we could go on and on and on. It is fascinating. 
It's what he's saying is, is that these earthly bodies, even though they're temporal, they're glorious. There is a beautiful element that reflects the glory of God that is not to be overlooked or misunderstood when we start talking about how we're going to have new bodies and spiritual bodies one day that really will actually be even better. But there's a glory to one and there's a glory to another. Does that make sense? And so, um, and then he goes on. He says in verse 42, so is also the resurrection of the dead. Now that is the term I'm going to touch on a few times. The resurrection of the dead. What that basically is referring to is the event when it happens during that seven-year period when Christ is returning at some stage in there. I'm not entirely positive where that occurs. But at some stage where the spirits are then joined, our spirits are then joined to our new bodies. So the body that was sown in the earth, the old body, is faded away and a new body is raised up and is joined to our spirit. This event is described as the resurrection of the dead. Okay, dead bodies now re revived back to life, but it's a new body whenever we get it. So, um, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So you get the, the figurative language, right? Being sown is the, the earthly body going into the earth, going into the into the soil he says it's sown in corruption and all this what does he mean he's saying there's frailties to it there's weaknesses there's elements of this body that are meant for the time that we're in but that are not suited for the time that is yet to come this is the key these earthly bodies are glorious they're beautiful they reflect the glory of God I mean just look at yourself just look at yourself right now and say you look good The, they're, they're glorious and they reflect the glory of God but there is a temporal nature to it remember what I said everything that God created is created to live and survive and exist in the times in the environment and in the conditions to which it has been assigned so our earthly bodies are perfectly created for our earthly existence to hold our spirits, if you will, while we're walking this earth. Pretty fascinating to think about it, isn't it? But these bodies will not be able to withstand, they will not be able to exist in heaven in eternity. And this is where it starts to become a mystery. Because it's like, well then, what is that body gonna do? Like what, you know, what does it need to be in order to be in eternity? I don't know, but it's clear that God sees it necessary and fitting 
as part of the way he's created us and part of the way he communicates about who we are and where we're headed, that he's given us one body for this earth and for this world while we're here, but he's prepared another body, a spiritual body that is suited for eternity for our spirits to join with that will last for all of the eternal age after that. Isn't that pretty amazing? Now, let me make one more point to you. This is kind of some crazy stuff. He, when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to talk about that in a minute, he speaks about it as the first resurrection, which means that if there's the first, then obviously there's one that follows, okay? So when Christ returns around this event at, at the seven-year period and sets the stage for the next era of time, which we'll also touch on, called the millennial era, a thousand-year period after he returns. When he comes back, the resurrection of the dead, at some point in there, occurs the first resurrection. Our spirits are joined with new spiritual bodies, heavenly bodies suited for all of eternity. The next resurrection happens at the end of the thousand-year period. You're going to have to hang with me to let me unpack and teach through this this week and next week. But I do want to just say this part of this, that the second resurrection where there are bodies joined to spirits is for the unbelievers. It's for all those whose spirits have departed and are in Sheol awaiting the final destination of the lake of fire. And it's just interesting because when he talks about these bodies for us, suited for heaven, that the conditions in the environment of heaven demand a different body, that it is implied that the exact same thing is needed for those spirits who will be spending eternity in the lake of fire. Because the spirits live forever. They are not annihilated or cease to exist at any point. Those spirits spend eternity in the lake of fire apart from the presence of God and they need new bodies for their spirits to be able to withstand the weeping and gnashing of teeth and fire and brimstone that never ceases day or night. Wow, there's some powerful stuff to think about. That is the second resurrection. This we're reading is the one that refers to as the first resurrection which is why later in Revelation he says, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. Oh, what's up, buddy? <laughs> He's my nephew. <laughs> oh. You need a good little disruption every now and then, right? It was getting a little serious in here. That's good. It just kind of... Clears the air a little bit. All right, so reading on, let's go to verse 50 here now. It says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, meaning our earthly bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Can't withstand it, can't receive it, can't exist in it. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I mean, that's the way I would package all of this, 
right? I mean, I, I'm never going to come out and say, look, this is absolutely every. This is exactly what happened. This is all, you know, like th- much of this stuff is mysterious. We can draw interpretation and go through proper procedures of interpretation to reach these conclusions. But when Paul says, hey, this is a mystery, I think we need to approach it the same way. Agreed? But a fascinating mystery nonetheless. So these spiritual bodies that are heavenly, like I'm pretty sure we're all going to have six packs. <laughs> Just chip, chiseled and ripped and, oh man. And never have to work out a day in your life to get it. But you do have to work out now. <laughs> this is the earthly body, so you need to treat it as such, right? It needs exercise, it needs nutrition, it needs rest. All the fitness people are like, what is he doing? Oh. Yes, you need to be into that. All right. Um, so verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay, fascinating here. So we shall not all sleep, we sh- but we shall all be changed. Meaning when this happens, as we talked a little bit about, I think last week, that there are some people who are still alive when Christ returns and still here when he comes back, right? And so he says, not all of us will sleep, which means those who have already died and spirits have gone on to be with the Lord. will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So in whatever era that happens in and wherever we are on the earth alive or already gone to be with the Lord in heaven, all of us will be changed in this moment, in this time when this happens, and we will all get those new spiritual bodies when that occurs. Verse 52, so, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality think about that isn't that awesome you are going to put on immortality it's like being clothed putting it on and wearing it and wearing it well that's a fascinating thing to think about this mortal this will put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your sting O Hades where is your victory because not even death can keep the spirits and the new bodies of those sons and daughters of Christ from inheriting eternal life, immortality, and perfection that is yet to come. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Your sting. That's why I speak of these things, saying there's encouragement to be found and to be had for the believer in this, Because death, when you realize, is not permanent, is not final, no longer has the sting that it does for someone who lacks the awareness and the knowledge that it isn't temporal and isn't final. When that's the end, it stings. It hurts. It's hard to think about. There's nothing beyond that. So obviously that is a a worrisome type of moment. But when that's not the end, 
when it's just a passing moment in the twinkling of an eye that's a vapor here today, gone tomorrow, and eternity is what we're created for and where we're headed, where is the sting anymore? And we can live each day encouraged and empowered with that sense of great hope and anticipation without the feeling or the threat of sting around death that is yet to come. Because it speaks about the first death and then the second death. So we have the first resurrection, we have the second resurrection. I've just described those. We have the first death, which is when our physical bodies die, when that seed is sown into the soil. Everyone will experience that. But the second death is actually spiritual in nature, and it's the way it refers to in Revelation, we'll go there a little later, probably next week, but it's where it refers to as those spirits that are joined, obviously, to their, their bodies, but are cast out into the lake of fire. The second death is eternal separation from God, spiritual death. And it says that those who partake in the first resurrection will not experience the second death. Does that make sense? So we, the second death in terms of lake of fire uh, apart from the presence of God for all of eternity does not come for those who receive, take part in the first resurrection, which more simply put, are those who are sons and daughters of Christ, marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who will inherit the kingdom of God and eternal life in the presence of God forever. So it's a beautiful awesome thing a mystery fascinating all at the same time but certainly something that Paul speaks about that he teaches on and again is meant to encourage us and bring us hope in the way that we live and the way that we allow our lives to be a a witness and a reflection to others around us because when we're living in the will of God in the presence of God so if we're living in his will we're in his presence And his nature and his character are reflected off of us. People can see evidence of God in us when we're living that way. And there is a hope, there is an excitement, there is a beauty and a love that is to be found in that. And so because it carries the nature of God in the way that we live, it's attractional. It draws people to that. And it's a message of hope that we get to share. It's a message of glory that's yet to come that we await and that we anticipate. So the I keep doing this. I'm sorry. In the first service, I drew out like a timeline. And then I realized that it was so messy, you couldn't make heads or tails of it. So I chose not to do it this time. But um, so in at the end, when Christ returns, we obviously have this moment, this occurrence called the resurrection of the dead. And we get new spiritual bodies. The one final thing that I want to hit on that happens at the end of when Christ returns before the thousand year period sets in is that Satan himself is actually bound up and essentially put into prison in hell in the underworld. Whereas prior to that, ever since he was cast out of heaven and thrown down to the earth, He's been allowed to roam around the earth and wreak hell and havoc on the people of the earth as God's children. But when Jesus divested him of his authority 
in the belly of the earth during those three days after he went to the cross, then he gave us the right to actually live in authority over him, but it requires right now the exercising of our faith in order to realize that authority, to demonstrate that authority. In order to put Satan under our foot and live with dominion and subdue him and keep him under uh, our, our foot, we have to believe we have that authority and we have to exercise that authority. And then he is put where he belongs. But he's still roaming the earth trying to deceive, trying to scheme, trying to manipulate certainly all the unbelievers, but also even those who know Christ that don't know the authority that they really have trying to put them in prison in bondage and in chains to, to the things that God would have them called to do so that those plans for their life can't come to pass. So when Satan was cast out of heaven down to the earth, he's roaming the earth. Listen to this. The Bible says, Paul describes it, uh, Satan as the prince of the power of the air, meaning he occupies the air, which is the atmosphere when you study in the Bible, it speaks about the first, second, and third heaven. So the first heaven is really just that atmospheric region over the earth. And, and that's the prince of the power of the air. So he roams the earth and the air, he occupies that. Second heaven is the celestials, the stars, and the planets. And then the third heaven is the abode of God, where the presence of God is, where we'll be. And so it also says in the book of Job... Whenever God and Satan were discussing, you know, the, the situation with Job, um, God asked Satan, he said, so where, where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming the earth to and fro, walking all about it. So I'm saying all that to build up to this moment when Christ returns, where Satan is bound up and put into hell and not allowed to roam the earth, occupy the atmosphere anymore after this happens for a thousand year period of time. Now, I'm going to show you that in Revelation 20, and that's where we're going to have to end today. And if you're like me, you're thinking questions like, why a thousand years? You know, like, I don't know. I mean, we're going to dig into that. Well, what happens after that? Well, we're going to talk about that part next week. But for right now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John's vision, and he says, then, again, this is after Armageddon, after Christ returns, after the marriage supper of the Lamb, the catching away, all that has happened, and now it's getting ready to transition over from the, that church age and the seven-year tribulation to the millennial era, this thousand-year period. This transition is getting ready to happen. And here's what is going on with Satan. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So you understand prior to that, he was not bound. He is not bound. He's roaming. As the Bible says, he roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's on the prowl. I mean, he's got us in his sights. That's his bent right now presently. That's why we need the power, presence, and authority of God so that that doesn't have an effect on us, doesn't render us ineffective for God. So he says he, that he comes down with a chain and binds him for a thousand years. Verse three, 
And this angel cast Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Again, that bottomless pit is Sheol in the earth, right? Under a compartment of the earth. And then set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's a whole other thing right there when he's released. But let's just back up one sentence earlier. It says, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. So once, this just goes to show you how harmful Satan is. Once his occupancy on the earth and his roaming is, is subdued and he's put in chains and put in the underbelly of the earth for a thousand years, the entire condition of the world changes because of the absence of Satan and his demons. All of a sudden, everything begins to change. Now, at the end of the thousand years, I always hesitate when I go there before I'm there, but I, I need to. So at the end of the thousand years, there is a new heaven and a new earth that God creates. The reason I tell you that is because from the beginning of the thousand years and through that, the earth is the same earth that has been. Now we know that that earth, this earth, has been largely destroyed by cataclysmic events and celestial disruptances, cosmic disruptances and all that. It's been largely destroyed. So you think, well, that doesn't sound like a beautiful place. Listen, in the flood, God destroyed the earth by water. And as that water subsided, what happened? The earth, earth brought forth a new, beautiful type of fertility and growth, population of all things in a new and glorious way. All of a sudden, it was green again. There was fruit. There was all this stuff, right? So when the earth is destroyed or largely destroyed by these cataclysmic events, prior to the return of Christ, during this thousand-year period, I would suggest to you that the earth comes back after fire has quenched her in a new and beautiful, restored state of fertility, of vibrancy, perhaps with things we've never even seen or imagined before that'll be a part of the existence of that planet before the new heaven and the new earth are brought forth at the end of the thousand years. But the key is that it is void of the presence and occupancy of Satan and his demonic forces. Listen to this in Isaiah 11 as it gives some foreshadow and some picturing of this period of time once Satan is no longer here. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. My kids are going to love that. <laughs> and the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. There's no threats. There's no evil. There's no harm. You, you're starting to get this. It's peace. It's, it's a covering of peace over the whole earth. 
The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now, I have a real problem with this part because I'm a hunter. <laughs> and it doesn't appear like that's going to be going on. <laughs> no. You see the peaceful condition and the nature of the earth because it's void of Satan's influences, demonic forces, and all of the evil and fallen nature that had preceded the earth and its inhabitants prior to this time when God, when Jesus returns. Now, I'll hit on this more as we close this series out, but what is absolutely remarkable is that you actually start to see a picture of that final stage in its completed and perfected stage that looks a lot like how it was originally intended back in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that something? The beautiful, lush nature, the perfection of the planet, the peace, the man in the presence of God and being with him, and then the fall. And all that was changed. Dominion was given back by Christ. But then at the end, when he comes back and the earth starts to change, it begins to bring forth a condition that looks a lot like God's original plan back in the garden before sin all along. Wow, pretty powerful. Don't you think? Are you guys, yeah, okay. <laughs> got nothing out of you there. Okay, all right. An amen would have been fine, actually, but all right. So, Chapter 20, verse 4, these last few verses, back to Satan has just been bound up for a thousand years now, and that's beginning. Verse 4, and then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. These are the martyrs during tribulation. And for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Let me just say, I in no way think that this is figurative language. I believe these are absolute actual events that will happen and will take place. This is not symbolic. These are actual things that will occur. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years so the saints and the martyrs that are all now joined in heaven with Christ when he returned, new spiritual bodies, will live and reign on this present earth in its newly birthed state for a thousand years. We reign with Christ in the absence of Satan and his demons during this period of peace and of time that is setting up for the eternal age, which is after the millennial. Verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And this part now is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Remember, I just told you that. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Amen. Thank you. Where'd that come from? You are, I'm giving you, yeah, all right. You pastor's favorite today. All right. <laughs> Praise God for you. I'll say some extra prayers this week. All right. <laughs> so 
the rest of the dead did not live again for a thousand years. And the saints are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Daniel actually prophesied about this. He saw thrones in his vision, his prophetic vision. And he saw saints sitting on thrones and judging the earth, reigning over the earth. Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said, the 12 apostles, he said, you will sit on thrones and you will judge. So somehow there is this sense that we are reigning with Christ over the earth in its condition and state during that millennial period. Satan is out of the picture. He's bound up in hell in Hades. And it says the rest of the dead did not live again until the end of the thousand years. That means all of those who have died in unbelief and those who were on the earth that were slain at Armageddon, all those departed spirits went into Sheol, into hell, in the underbelly of the earth, and they will not live again until the end of the thousand years, which means at that point, after the thousand-year reign, we'll see that there's an event called the Great White Throne Judgment, and Hades and death in the underbelly of the earth deliver up all of their dead. They are judged for their sin and their rebellious acts against God. And then from that point, they are cast into the final destination, which is the lake of fire. And he says, the, when he says that, well, they will not live again in the first, he talks about the first resurrection, the second resurrection is coming. It's at that point when their spirits are delivered up out of the underbelly where they're joined with their new bodies that are set up for eternity in the lake of fire after that because it is designed to support and sustain them evidently through that period of eternity. And I just want to remind you again, like I said before, the worst part of all that I mean, we hear weeping, gnashing in teeth, fire and brimstone, never ends, day or night, just constant agony and torture. The worst part of that is separation from God. And praise God, we have been given right now in this day that we live in the opportunity to live in relationship and in the presence of God right here on this earth while our feet are walking and while we're breathing. And that will be the eternal state for all of those who believe for all of eternity. And that's what's referred to as perfection, paradise. That which is perfect is yet to come. John says in 1 John chapter 1, I believe in his epistle, he says that when that point comes, that we will then see God as he is. Wow. Folks, as much as you can glimpse him now, and I pray with all my heart that that is with a depth that is unprecedented in your lifetime, but with as much as you can gaze upon the beauty and the character and the nature of God with everything he's given you to see that in his word and his creation, we will not see him in fullness until the next era comes and we leave this earth and then we will see him as he is and that's part of the glorious perfected nature that we can't even fully grasp is awaiting us which is far better than anything we could ever know here on this earth does that make you want to shout today or what hallelujah would you stand to your feet with me please Hallelujah. Isn't the Bible fascinating? I mean, it's the best book ever. Really. 
it, it, it's just remarkable to me the accuracy behind prophecy thousands of years before events even unfold. And, and we see all of the prophecies going back thousands of years that have been fulfilled, which are key indicators to the inerrancy, meaning no error, in Scripture, and give us that faith and assurance that those things that are still yet to come that have been prophesied will happen exactly as God has said and is exactly as He has willed. It's just a matter of time as they begin to unfold. But folks, we have a mission. You have a calling on your life, a purpose for which God has created you. The Bible says that He knew you before He formed you in your mother's womb. It says that He's counted every hair on your head. It's been numbered. You think God didn't go to the most, the greatest levels of detail in the way He's designed you. It says in another place that He's pre-appointed the boundaries of our dwelling places, meaning the years of time that you live is exactly when God's created you to live. He, he's purposeful in every way imaginable about your life, about your creation, and about your destiny. And part of the plan that He has for you is that it fits into a bigger plan. His overall plan to build this place we're headed called heaven. To expand the kingdom. I pray when I get there, there's a big addition that's there. That I could say, man, because I lived well, there are people here that God used me in my life. There are people here that now, because I was obedient and faithful to God, that my, the plan He had for my life came to pass. And that's the case for all of us. He wants to use us to accomplish those things here in this earth. There is a lost and dying world who do not know Christ. That is the crux of it. That is the pinnacle issue for us while we walk this earth is to be able to know God, love Him with all of our heart and share that with the world around us. And that outcome that awaits us that we're headed to one day and it will come for all of us. We can share that with more people as a result of how we live our lives. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you, God, that you would just put us on fire with mission, Lord, for you. That each and every one of us, that you just ignite a flame in our heart that burns hotter and hotter and hotter as the days go on. In our devotion to you and the plan that you have for our life, God. We thank you so much for this marvelous story, this marvelous, glorious picture of eternity that's yet ahead. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you were willing to send your son to die, to secure that destination for us. May we live every day honoring you in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord, in closeness and in relationship with you, the way you've created us to live all along from the beginning. Help us to walk in that and to reflect that to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.